It is such a joy to be here with you this morning. Honestly, such a privilege, especially as the Sunday that follows really the spiritual discipline of celebration that you engaged in last weekend and that you've been engaged in to thank God for all that he's done for the last 20 years. And one of the disciplines of the Psalms, for sure, you can see is God continually calling his people to remember all that he has done because it gives us the confidence to dream about what he might yet do. And I hope, especially for many of you that have been in the, on this journey for a while, maybe here at Westridge, that just remembering the power and faithfulness of God will start to just kindle vast dreams of what God wants to do in you and through you in the coming era. And as those dreams are opening up, I thought we'd spend a little bit of time this morning talking about what God is passionate about. I think those who have been following in this journey here at Westridge over these years and see the miracles come together, it really has been about getting just behind the wake of what God is passionate about. He wanted to do something here and through you and in this community. And it was his power that made it possible. And so fundamentally for followers of Jesus is trying to figure out what is Jesus passionate about? And even a willingness maybe to set aside our passions and interests for a moment to think, but what is God most passionate about? This morning I'd like to have us spend a few minutes talking about two of the more unfamiliar passions of God. And that's first of all his passion for the world and his passion for justice. Now, first, God's passion for the world. I grew up in Sunday school where they taught you to memorize John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The whole idea from that passage is that the incarnation, the coming of Jesus into the world was motivated by God's love for, passion for the world. And what is meant by that, of course, is not the love for the big, huge dirt clod that is the world, But it's all the people who are spread across all these crazy continents and cultures. This is what God loves the world. Now, by contrast, what do I love? What am I passionate about? Well, to be honest with you, every single day, I am totally passionate about me. I love me. I'm fascinated by me every day. It's not like I have to wake up in the morning and wait. Gary, don't forget to think about yourself today. It's, uh, it all seems to come rather naturally, and I, that's more narrow than I should be, my pastor says. So I'm trying to open up my heart a little bit, right? And on, and on a really good day, I will find myself extending love and compassion to everyone in the world who's in my immediate family. And this is a pretty good day in my household, actually, where I'll extend more love and compassion to my wife and four kids than I do to myself And they usually circle that day on the calendar. And they pray it might happen next year, maybe, you know. And then maybe I'll have some larger spiritual experience that will start to really grow my heart. And I will find myself extending love and compassion to everyone in the world that I like. And who likes me. And who is like me. This then becomes my world, right, of passion and energy and focus and generosity. 
It's this little shriveled world of me and mine. Now, I think Jesus probably finds this totally natural. This is totally understandable. But I don't think everything that's natural and understandable is necessarily godly, right? So at least we here together, maybe this morning, we can at least agree upon what the goal is, right? And even if we're not there yet, maybe the goal is to have a heart that's becoming more like the heart of Jesus, that shares something of his love for the world. You know, this came home to me in a very devastating and powerful way personally, as Ryan shared. In 1994, I was serving as a prosecutor at the U.S. Department of Justice when suddenly I was sent to this little country in the middle of Africa I really had never heard of called Rwanda. Some of you might remember when the Rwanda genocide took place in the summer of 1994. About 800,000 people were murdered in eight weeks' time. That's like having 9-11 happening three times a day, every day, for eight solid weeks. Can you imagine? And after it was over with, the international community wanted to bring the leaders of the genocide to justice, and so I was sent over as the director of the UN's genocide investigation. And all murder investigations just begin with where the bodies are. And the bodies were overwhelmingly in churches because most of the slaughter had taken place there. The Tutsi minority group had run to churches for sanctuary, but then their Hutu neighbors had waded into them and just slaughtered them. And so I was given a list of a hundred different mass graves and massacre sites, and we just went to one after another, beginning to gather the evidence against the leaders of the genocide. And it was just a business of sorting through the carnage. But the hardest part for me, actually, personally, was having to interview some of the survivors, and especially some of the kids who had survived these massacres. And on one particular day, I was sitting across from this little girl across from a little table at a school, and and I was trying to get her story from her. She had actually survived one of these massacres and had lay amongst the dead for about two and a half days before she made herself, made her way out to hide in the forest. And so I'm trying to get her story out of her. And the first thing you would have noticed about this little girl was the first thing I noticed, which honestly was just how beautiful she was. She had these eyes that just sparkled and she would say something to make herself laugh and these white teeth would just burst across her face and she was beautiful. And I remember in this one moment, it struck me in a way that I had never thought of before that the maker of the entire universe specifically intended at some moment of creation that this little Rwandan girl should exist. And not only that, but he intended that she should exist to be with him forever. And he wanted this one little Rwandan girl to be with him forever so badly that he was willing to give up his own son and watch him be tortured and murdered to make sure that this little eight-year-old Rwandan girl would be with him forever. And suddenly I'm just blown away by the cosmic significance of this one little eight-year-old Rwandan girl. 
But I also knew from the pink machete scars across the back of her head and her neck that she was just about a millimeter of a machete blow from being part of just that huge pile of corpses we had been cleaning up that afternoon. And then it occurred to me that 800,000 other Rwandans who were just as precious to God as this little girl, they could all just drop off the face of the earth, right? During the summer of 1994. And as an American Christian, honestly, it would not affect my day at all. And suddenly I could sense that there was a significant difference, right? If I was honest. There was a significant difference between the way Jesus was regarding the world and the way I was. And honestly, because I love Jesus, I didn't want to be that far away from what really mattered to him. So it's been a a journey now for me to try to open up the borders of my heart beyond this shriveled world of just me and mine and try to share something of his love and compassion for this world. But you know, what's interesting as you do that is you go into that world and you actually try to share something of the love of Christ with that world. What do you think is probably the hardest thing for people in our world to believe about the Christian faith? I think it's simply the idea that God is good because they're in so much pain. You know, there'll be 10,000 kids today in our world who, are, who will die today just because their parents can't get them enough food. And there'll be 10,000 again tomorrow and the next day. And really, honestly, how are they supposed to find it believable that God is so good? Or what about the 1.5 billion, with a B, people in our world who have no access to medical care? Right? They're, not at, they're not arguing about whether or not you know, they'll get to choose their doctor and their medical plan or not. They will never see a doctor or an antibiotic. And when their kids are suffering and hurting needlessly, how are they supposed to somehow find it believable that God sees them and loves them and is good? In fact, if you think about it, for all those who are suffering and hurting in our world today, what is God's plan for making it believable that he's good? Well, it turns out the answer to that question It's kind of surprising because it turns out that we're the plan and that God doesn't have another plan. Do you remember what Jesus said to us, his disciples, in Matthew chapter 5? Where he said, you are the light of the world. We're familiar with thinking that Jesus is the light of the world, but Jesus says to us, His disciples, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they will see your good works. And then they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If any of us woke up this morning wondering about the significance of our existence, do we matter? What Jesus is saying is that God Almighty has put his entire reputation on the line in the world through us. The Apostle Paul says this amazing thing in 2 Corinthians 5.20 where he says that God is making his appeal to the world through us. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to make it believable that God is good. 
How? By going to those who are in need and showing them the love of God. And so if there are people who are hungry and starving in our world, for heaven's sakes, we can go to them and share our food and we can show them the goodness of God. And if others are suffering because they don't have medicine or doctors, or if there's little babies that are just abandoned in a place, we're the ones who can come along and show up for them and make it believable that there's a God who loves them. Because when we do that, they actually see us, the body of Christ. That's what we're called, right? Think of this. The body of Christ shows up. And then it becomes believable to them that God is good. But it's interesting because there's another category of people in our world who are suffering. And it's interesting because they're not suffering because they don't have food or because they don't have access to the gospel or because they don't have doctors or housing. These are the people in our world who are suffering because of the abuse and oppression of other people. These are what we call the victims of injustice in the world. Now, if you're like me, you can kind of feel like the word injustice in this era like means nothing, right? Or it means everything and it means nothing. It's a pretty useless word, right? And as an American, I pretty much, you know, feel like I'm a victim of injustice like all day, practically every day, right? <laughs> like I'm at the grocery store the other day and um, you have like express lanes at your grocery store, right? And, and, and as I'm always in the express lane, but there's rules about the express lane. I don't know what the law is in your state or your express lane or grocery store, but in mine, big sign says 10 items only, right? So I'm there the other day. I got my grocery cart. I got 10 items. The guy in front of me, 13 items. He's totally jamming up the express lane, right? And he's totally breaking the law, and you can count them right there. It's 13 items. And I'm a lawyer, and I could sue this guy, right? And I could get justice. Uh, Well, just so you know, when the Bible is talking about injustice, this is not what it's talking about. Injustice in the Bible is actually a particular kind of sin. Injustice is about the abuse of power. The abuse of power to take from other people the good things that God intended for them. Their life, their liberty, their dignity, the fruit of their love and their labor. And when someone who is stronger is able to just take those things away because they have more power... God calls this a sin, the sin of injustice. This is the sin that King David commits. You'll remember when he abuses his power as a king to steal another man's wife. And then he abuses his power as king to steal that man's life. And the prophet Nathan has to confront him for his abuse of power. This is why in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. But on the side of the oppressor was power. What does injustice look like in this broader world today? Well, in 1997, 1997, the same year that Westridge was born, I left my job at the U.S. Department of Justice and joined with some others to formed this ministry called International Justice Mission, IJM. And we're a collection of Christian criminal investigators and lawyers and social workers. And we take on 
cases of violent abuse of very poor people in the poorest communities around the world. And we're now operating in nearly 20 different offices around the world. And so after 20 years, I have a pretty clear idea of what kind of injustice the poor confront around the world. And I'll never forget meeting a little boy in India one year named Kumar. And when Kumar was about five years old, he was living in a very poor rural area with his family, and his parents tragically passed away. And by the age of eight, he had been sold into slavery, into literal slavery, by the age of eight years old in a brick factory. And this is how he lives his life. He just makes and carries bricks 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week. He never goes to school. He never plays. And he wakes up just to do it all over again. He's held inside a, a compound with about 70 other people who've been sold into slavery. And he will spend his entire life in this way. Around the world now, experts tell us that there are about 45 million people who are held illegally in slavery. That's more people in slavery today than in any other time in human history. And at IJM, we have met thousands of them by name. And so the, the question, if you can just picture what life is like for Kumar today and for millions of others who are in this place of unthinkable abuse, how are they supposed to find it believable that God is good? Or what about uh, Alina? She's an 11-year-old girl I met in the Philippines. She was also living in a rural community and one day she was just very violently sexually assaulted. And the thing that made it so crushing is the man who committed the abuse was actually the chief of police in her town. We work in communities where up to 40% of girls are victims of rape or attempted rape by the age of 14. And under this epidemic in poor communities of this kind of violence, how is Alina and how are these girls somehow supposed to find it believable that God is good? Or what about Jyoti? Jyoti was 16 when I met her. She was living with an impoverished family and uh, she earnestly wanted to try to contribute to help their financial situation. And so one day some women came to her and said, Hey, Jyoti, why don't you come with us to the big city? We can get you a job there and you can send that money home to help your family. Well, she wanted to do this. And so she went with these ladies. But on the way there, they actually gave her some tea that was drugged. She fell unconscious. And they took her to the red light district of Mumbai, this massive city in India. And they sold her into a brothel for about $250. And they stuffed her into this underground room underneath the brothel and just beat her for three days until she's forced to provide services to the customers there. And she, this little teenager has to service between 20 and 30 men a day, seven days a week. Now, UNICEF tells us that there are about 2 million children held in forced prostitution in our world today. So again, the question is, how is Jyoti, how are these children somehow find it supposed to find it believable that God is good. In fact, how does God regard all of this groaning and aching hurt in our world? Well, fortunately, our scripture actually tells us how God thinks about it. And one of the places that is so powerful for me was Psalm 10, which I 
sort of stumbled upon while I was in Rwanda. I'm sure I'd heard this sermon, I mean, this psalm before in a sermon as a kid because it opens up with this powerful question of why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. And it goes on to describe the way he sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places, he murders the innocent. In other words, it just goes on to describe this very kind of violence that we see in our world. But in the end, the psalmist returns to this affirmation of the truth about God, and it'll be up here on your screen. It says, You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, in order that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Or this passage from Psalm 3510, which says, Who, O Lord, is like you? You deliver the poor from those who are too strong for them. You rescue the poor and the needy from him who robs him. In other words, you can go again and again in the scripture, and I could march you through passage after passage where you can see how God regards this kind of violence. He hates it, and he wants it to stop. Why? Because he loves Kumar. He loves Alina. He loves Jyoti. He loves all of those who are suffering under these kinds of abuses, and he wants it to stop. But that has always just raised another question in my mind, which is, but God, what's your plan for actually doing something about it? What's your plan for actually stopping the abuse? Well, once again, the answer from the Bible is a little surprising because it turns out that we're the plan and that God doesn't have another plan. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 117 says, Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. For those of us who have come to take the Bible seriously, there can be no doubt that God has given to us the work of justice in the world. But you'll notice when we find out that we're God's plan for doing justice in the world, it's not like we stand up cheering. It's like, yeah, great plan, God. It's like, what? I mean, maybe we're pretty good at some of the church planting and the feeding people and we'll even build some houses and so on, but the violent abuse and oppression, like, what's plan B on that one, God? Because we hear these stories and we hear about the statistics and we see the violence and Wow, we just feel bolted to our chair with despair, right? We just feel so powerless. What could we possibly do? And in those moments, I just think it's so important for us to remember when the disciples felt exactly the same way when Jesus asked them to do something. And one of the places where this is so powerful is in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. You're probably familiar with this story, right? But do you remember how the story starts? Jesus has been teaching for a long time and people are getting hungry. And so the the disciples, they have a brilliant idea. They say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, why don't you send everyone home so they can get themselves fed? So this would have been the famous story of how everybody went home and got themselves fed. But Jesus doesn't think that's a very fun story. And so he wants to do something different. So he says to the disciples, no, no, you guys just feed them. 
Now, the thing you got to love about the disciples, right, is that they're always just so patient to explain to Jesus what he clearly doesn't understand about the situation. And they say, oh, Jesus. You see, there's 5,000 hungry people, and they get it on a whiteboard, and they do the math. And so they should, see, it would take a half year's wages to be able to feed them all. And we just don't have that kind of cash on us today, so... Back to you, Jesus. See, there was nothing unclear about what it is that Jesus told them to do, right? He said, feed them. But they look at the magnitude of the need, and they look at their own little resources, and they think, this couldn't really have anything to do with us. And isn't that just the way we felt a minute ago when God says, seek justice, rescue the oppressed? We look at the mountain of need, and we think, Really, there's got to be some other team, right? Well, in the story, how does Jesus respond? It's pretty interesting. He simply says to them, well, what do you have? Well, they don't have nothing, so they have to present what they do have, which it turns out is a little boy with a sack lunch that his mom has packed for him to go hear Jesus talk. And so this is presented, the five loaves and two fish, as the corporate resources that are supposed to meet this need. And this is when the Apostle Andrew enters the the conversation uh, because he has a graduate degree in public policy or something. Uh, And he looks at the five loaves and two fish and he says, what are these among so many? See, honestly, this is is the way I would respond because I went to college and and I took a math course. And and you've got 5,000 hungry people and five loaves and two fish and... Honestly, if you're as sophisticated as I am, and if you understood the deeper sociological roots of the situation, you'd see there's really nothing for us to do but to sit in the paralysis of despair. (laughs) But what does Jesus say? He simply says, give it to me. What do you have, and will you give it to me? And in that moment, Jesus takes responsibility for the miracle and feeds 5,000 people to overflowing. You'll notice that Jesus didn't ask the disciples if they had enough. He didn't ask the disciples to do the miracle. He just asked, what do you have, and will you give it to me so that I can do the miracle? And can I tell you, after 20 years of work with International Justice Mission, can I just testify that this is what I have seen over and over and over again, that if God's people are willing to just pony up a little bit of obedience, he is prepared to do miracles of power. Do you know that Kumar is no longer held as a slave inside that brick factory? IJM's local team of investigators and lawyers were able to infiltrate that place, move the authorities to raid that and get Kumar and all 70 of the other slaves out get them to long-term aftercare where they are able to stand on their own two feet. Kumar was able to go back to school and it turns out that he's brilliant. He actually came back to serve while he was in school as an intern with IJM and he's actually helped us rescue hundreds of other people from slavery. And here's what I can tell you. Amen. And here's what has changed. Kumar knows there is a good God. Because he's seen the goodness of God. And now he wants to share that with others. Likewise with Alina. She's no longer just trembling in utter fear and despair. 
because the bully in her town can just abuse with impunity. Our local Filipino IJM team was supported by some American friends, and they were able to make sure that that police chief was removed from office. And he's actually now serving a life sentence for the abuses that he has been committing in that community. And that changes the whole calculation about what the bullies can get away with. And now Alina has grown up. She's gone off to college, majoring in communications, and she's one of the most powerful spokespeople in the nation of the Philippines speaking out against violence against women. And she nurtures and cares for young teenage girls as they walk through the difficult path of seeking justice when they are survivors of this kind of abuse. And what Alina will also tell you is that she knows there's a good God because she had that God show up for her. And now she shows up for others. And likewise, Joe T is no longer just being serially raped inside that brothel. Our local IJM team was able to infiltrate that dark place and get her out, get her to a place of long-term Christian aftercare. And she was so inspired by the way God loved her that she said, well, you know, I know where other girls are being held. And she led us on a second police raid that rescued seven more girls out. And one of those was a girl named Kalindi. And Kalindi said, well, I know even where more girls are being held. And she led us back on a third police raid to an underground dungeon underneath one of these brothels. And on this particular day, about 24 of these girls were brought out from a place of unspeakable abuse. And they were brought out into the light of day so that they could experience the goodness of God. And this is the picture, my friends, of the gospel of Jesus Christ going into the darkest places, overwhelming the most vicious forces of violence and bringing people out so they have the opportunity to know the goodness of God. And all this happens because the body of Christ showed up for Joti and Joti showed up for Kalindi and then Kalindi shows up for these girls. So here's the, the question really. You know, if you think of that story of the feeding of the 5,000, I mean, why did Jesus do it the way that he did? Do you ever think about this? I mean, if he was God and people were hungry, why didn't he just dump manna on everybody? Like, poof, manna, you know, eat up and get back to the teaching. I think he did it the way that he did for just one reason. I think he wanted to give one little boy a very cool day. Right, because the little boy goes back to his mom who packed his lunch, right? His mom guess what Jesus did with my lunch today? He fed 5,000 people. (laughs) Do you ever imagine that little boy will ever forget that day? And honestly, was he the only one in that crowd who had a lunch to share? Did Jesus really have to have the lunch in order to do the miracle? Or did he just love that little boy so much to say, wait, wait, wait. Watch what I can do with your lunch today. Is this not God's invitation to us, to Westridge as a church, to each one of us? What does God want us, what does God want to do with what he's given us if we will give it back to him in the work of justice? Does this not suggest for this next era of our life as a church to perhaps rediscover God's passion for the world, to rediscover God's passion for justice 
and ask how might you want to use me, oh God, in this struggle. We have some tables out in the foyer there, of course, with more information to go more deeply into the scriptures about God's teaching on this, or you can actually even sign up to be a freedom partner with IJM to actually help be part of these rescue operations. Please consider doing that with us. We would love it. It will change you. But the big invitation is this. Why in a world of so much suffering and hurt and need? Have you ever thought, like, why have we been given so much? When I was growing up, I always wanted to be a really, really great football player. And uh, sadly, I turned out to be kind of a bad football player. But the good news is I had two older brothers who would sit me down and explain to me why I was a bad football player. (laughs) And they would say, well, see, Gary, you're small, but you're slow. And that was helpful in a weird way. And so what I would do is, of course, I would go to the weight room and try to work out, right, and try to get, you know, bigger. And nothing would ever happen to me, but I would, I would try anyways. But I would go to the gym, and always in their special section of the gym were the bodybuilders. And these, I don't know if you have any of these guys in your gym, but like they're just huge. I mean, huge chest and arms and legs. And, just, and there's so much muscle mass and so much strength and power. And I used to ask, but what's it all for? For a bodybuilder, it's for posing. (laughs) And the only time all that strength is ever really brought to bear is there's the crisis in the kitchen, right? And and the jam jar is stuck and they pop over the jam jar. (laughs) My prayer for all of us, each and every one of us, and for this beloved church, that in a world of so much aching, hurt, and need, that God will not leave us opening jam jars. That he'll rescue you from all things that are just too small. That he'll rescue us from all things of fear and lead us with courage into a world that's yearning to see the goodness of God through us. Let's pray. Kind Father, thank you, Almighty kind, kind Father. Thank you for the patience and gentleness with which you allow us to know you more deeply. Help us, Father, to take just one good step, next step, to follow you in your passionate work of justice in the world, whatever that is today. Father, don't let us just leaving this sanctuary just the same people who came in but transform us by the truth of your word and your grace in our lives. And may it all go to the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen.